to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We finished the book of Hebrews last time. I feel my heart has been directed to the book of 1 Corinthians and to look at it from a very specific light and vantage point. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you just wave and get their attention, they've got a Bible into your hands. We want everybody to have a Bible. God wants everybody to have a Bible and to read a Bible. And so please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which he has given you to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And even as we have sung and have made a part of our meditation this morning as we've worshipped you in song, hearing your voice means everything to us. We must hear your voice, Lord in our life. And you know that. And we thank you for the most foolproof way of all of hearing your voice, to be able to turn to your word. And we pray, Lord, that this morning as we read your word and study your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts and help us to hear your voice and to sense your heart and to recognize your heart and all that you write in this little introduction to this great, great letter. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, this morning we begin a new study in a new book of the Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians. And how I want to study this book as we go through it on the Sunday mornings is to look at it as a piece of instruction on how to live the Christian life in a pagan world. And so I've entitled this series, Christian Living in a Pagan World. The world that we live in, I don't need to tell you this, <clears throat> but I need to say it. The world that we live in is changing rapidly. It's not the world that I was raised in. And the nation that I, we live in is changing rapidly. It's not the same nation I was raised in. It's not the same nation of my childhood. It's not the same nation of my early adult years. It's not the same nation it was 20 years ago. It's not even the same nation that it was even 10 years ago. And morally and spiritually, it is moving in the wrong direction, and it is moving in the wrong direction at a speed 
that I never thought I would see in my lifetime how dramatically and quickly it is changing, literally, by the day and by the week. Of course, increasingly we no longer live in a nation that draws its morality from the Bible. God's definitions of right and wrong are now being uh, not even subtly attacked, but being openly attacked. And God's word and his truth and his definitions of right and wrong are being openly disrespected. The creature is disrespecting uh, the creator. And I mean, you think about this great gulf that exists between God and a human being, and the kind of audacity that we are witnessing of people rising up and considering not only rejecting God's truth and his definitions of right and wrong, his wisdom, but then uh, going so far as to make it seem as if it's foolish and anybody that would write such things as being foolish. And so it's attacked on every front, God's word, God's definitions of right and wrong, and in many cases completely overthrown right before our very eyes. The thing that's shocking to me, and it's shocking on one hand, but it's not shocking on the other hand, because as Christians we have uh, eyes to see. Uh, God has opened our eyes up. We see things that an unsaved person can't see. We see tendencies. We see trends. We see implications of decision-making that the world doesn't see. And yet you see how the world is throwing off God's definitions of right and wrong and His wisdom, and yet we see the end result of it. Even in this short period of 50 years where... This move has been at its strongest 40 or 50 years. You see the casualties of human beings, men, women, now children, being heaped up and becoming uh, slaves of sin. You don't throw off God's commandments and throw off his wisdom and end up free as a result. Always his wisdom is rejected out of a love for sin. And God never tells us no related to something because that something is good for us, but always because it is something that is destructive for us. So when God's definitions are rejected, they're rejected for that reason, and then people are free then to embrace whatever sin it is that they're wanting to embrace wholeheartedly But then you turn around and you look six weeks down the road, six months down the road, six years down the road, and you see the byproduct of it, and you see all it's done is taken them into a terrible bondage to sin or to darkness or to selfishness, where a great miracle is needed in their life now to free them from that. And so this is what we're in the middle of, this being enamored with the wisdom of man, despite the fact that all that it does when the wisdom of man collides with the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man is chosen over the wisdom of God, all of these victims and and that it produces 
And the nation then that does that kind of thing, it always leads to a decline morally and spiritually, ultimately materially and physically as a result. And we see the case where more and more people simply don't care. All people care about increasingly is, I want to gauge in that sin and I want to throw down every wall or every barrier to me engaging in the sins of my choice, even if I have to uh, call God a liar in order to do that. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That is always true. It has always been true historically. It will always be true. No nation will ever disprove it, not for all of its power, for all of its wealth, all of its self of sense, sense of self-importance. And thus, because this is the world that we're in, the commitment that will be required to live faithfully for the Lord as Christians today is different than the commitment that was required of previous generations. As a child, I remember that parents could send their children into the living room to watch television There are only three channels. But they could send their children in to watch television in the other room without the slightest concern. They knew that whatever they would see on those three channels would bolster or reaffirm the morality and the spirituality of the family. It would be another voice to speak those good and great and holy things into a person's life. And today, as a Christian parent, you wouldn't dare do that kind of a thing because virtually nothing on the television would encourage or reinforce godly character or godly living. And the fact of the matter is we could apply that not just to entertainment and television. You could apply that to virtually any arena in life, in schools, the workplace, and so forth. The world around us has become more and more pagan. And I use the word pagan as it's defined in the Merriam-Webster dictionary where this is the definition that was given for it. One who has little or no religion and who delights in sensual pleasures and material goods, an irreligious or hedonistic person. And it's important to realize that not all pagans are religionless. They can be very, very religious, but their religion approves of delighting in pleasures and material goods of hedonism as the meaning and the purpose of life, contrary to what it is that Jesus taught. And plainly, by that definition, we live in a pagan world and we live in a pagan nation. And thus what is, must be, what we must learn is what is required of us in order as for us as Christians to live successfully and in a way that honors God and that kind of an environment like never before in the history of our nation. I can't speak of other nations because I'm not preaching to other nations. I speak to us and speak of the nation that we live in. Now, why is a study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians helpful to us concerning what's necessary to live a Christian life in a pagan world. And the reason is, is that 
paganism and that whole pagan uh, worldview and pagan practice was the moral and the spiritual and the cultural vibe of ancient Corinth. And so the Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul to instruct the Christians there concerning how to live a Christian life in that context. Now, somebody might object and say, well, the church at Corinth wasn't a very spiritual church. In fact, they're a very, very carnal church. What in the world could they possibly teach us? And if you think that, you'd be absolutely right. The church of Corinth was not influencing pagan Corinth for Christ. They were simply not doing that. They were absolutely being influenced by pagan Corinth. Not the other way around. Not as it should have been. But that's what makes Paul's instruction to us so valuable because he had to instruct them regarding so many areas in which they were being fashioned by the world rather than the other way around that we end up with this wonderfully long letter addressing a wide variety of subjects in which apparently we as Christians are most prone to be conformed by the world regarding rather than making a difference in the world in which we're living. And so we end up with this letter that really helps us to avoid the traps that the Corinthian Christians fell prey to. I think it's important. In fact, it's not just that I think that it's important. It is important. Nobody can really understand where we will go in the coming weeks related to looking at 1 Corinthians without understanding something about Corinth itself and the parallels between it and the world that we live in and the nation that we live in today. So we begin with a brief introduction to the city of Corinth. Geographically, it was located, is located in the nation of Greece. It's a ruin today. It was located in the southern portion of Greece, known as the Peloponteus, section of Greece, and at the time of the writing of this letter, that southern portion of Greece, there was northern Greece and southern Greece, and it was connected by a four-mile-wide neck of land, an isthmus, that connected it. That was the only connection between north and uh, northern and southern Greece. It remains so today. Today they have, uh, in the 1800s, They cut a canal through there. French engineers were responsible for that. But at the time of Paul writing it, there was this neck of land, short neck of land, four four, uh, miles wide that connected the north with the south. And the city of Corinth lay right on at that narrow neck of land. The reason that that's significant is that because there was the two seas and waterways came right up to that narrow neck of land, it became, that narrow neck of land became the place where where a vast amount of the trade and traffic by ship on the Mediterranean Sea, very, very prosperous business, took place. It would, in traveling from uh, the eastern side of the Mediterranean toward Rome, which was the world-ruling empire at the time, and back across, um, an awful lot of the wealth would pass through Greece and, and, uh, and, and, and coming and going from Rome. Enormous wealth. 
many ships would uh, sail around the southern part of Greece in order to go to and fro uh, from Rome. But the cape down at the southern end of Greece, the Cape of Malia, was a, the, considered the most dangerous cape in the Mediterranean. And so to take your ship down to the south, especially at certain parts of the year, was to run a very high risk that you would, your ship would sink and you would lose your cargo, which could be the loss of everything having to do with your life. So great amounts of wealth were at stake. And so because it was so dangerous, in order to avoid that altogether and the risk of losing their cargo, two ports were established on either end of this narrow strip of land. And where the cargoes of one ship coming from the east would be offloaded and then carried across that narrow neck of land, reloaded onto a ship to continue to make its way to Rome. And the same thing would happen going in the other direction. Interestingly enough, if the ships were small enough, they would simply pull them out of the water, put them on rollers, and roll them across the four miles, reintroduce them to the sea, and go on on their way. And... The, the between these two particular ports was the city of Corinth that sat right between them, and because of its location, unbelievable wealth passed through it on a daily basis. And as a result, it grew to a city of about 500,000 people, and it became very, very wealthy because it charged fees and tolls in order to cross uh, that isthmus. But, uh, and so Corinth was a, 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 a geographically located in that place in Greece. Corinth was also a great business center. It was filled with people who knew how to make money, and they knew how to make a lot of money, and they knew how to spend a lot of money as well. It was a center for political power. It was made the Roman capital of Achaia, Uh, that region of the Roman Empire. And it never hurts to be a government center in a nation or in an empire. It's interesting reading the newspapers in the last uh, couple of weeks. Some of you might have seen the same article as well, that six out of the ten wealthiest counties in the United States of America are counties that surround Washington, D.C., You say, why don't they understand what the rest of us are going through? Recession? What recession? They don't know anything about a recession in those counties, in the surrounding uh, area. And so the money so often pours in wherever there is government and government influence. It was famous, Corinth was, for its art and its architecture. Uh, Those of you who have ever seen a Corinthian column, you know it's one of the most beautiful columns ever designed in history uh, related to architecture and building. It was also a sports-crazed city. Somebody says, all right, you better stop right there. You've gone from preaching to meddling. But it was the home of the uh, Isthmian Games, which was second in that time only in fame only to the Olympic Games, and it was carried on every uh, other year. They liked their entertainment extreme. They liked it violent, and so they had a great outdoor uh, 
uh, arena built could accommodate 20,000 people for the purpose of watching the gladiators fight and kill one another and, and watch men fight against wild beasts and be torn to pieces. And so they like this kind of thing. We're seeing on television and other things the same kind of thing, graduating. I don't know. We'll have uh, public edu- uh, executions next and maybe give everybody a rifle and they can shoot somebody while they're being hung or something. But the love for the violence. They also love to worship their Greek gods. And why wouldn't you want to worship the Greek gods? Because these ancient uh, gods of the Greeks weren't gods at all. They were simply the deification of the lusts of man, the deification of human characteristics of fallen man. And so in the worship of the Greek gods, it was simply the worship of self the worship of lust, the worship of the flesh, while giving the appearance that I was engaging in something uh, more noble rather than basically all it was was simply self-worship. And so there, was, there were the gods of nature, the gods of war, of violence, of beauty, of sex, of fertility, of vengeance, and, and on and on the list went. You could take any lust or desire of the flesh that we have in us from Adam and Eve, and you would find a Greek god that encapsulated that particular lust, and thus it justified a person engaging in that activity or in that characteristic and say, I'm only being just like the god that I worship. And so it was an attempt to sanctify uh, sin and uh, and the fallenness of, of flesh. And so... These were the things that were deified in Greek culture just as they're deified in our culture, and they are. They are what we worship, and this is what a pagan, worship, what a pagan country or a pagan world worships is it basically worships itself. It worships what it, it desires to do, its own lusts, its own longings. These are the things that take the place of a desire to love God and love other people. And just because in the United States of America we don't feel the need to set up gods or altars to these different kinds of things, um, we're a little more progressive. Uh, We don't even bother to try and make it look like what we're doing here is engaging in the worship of some kind of God. We're at a point now where we say, this is what we want to do, and we're going to do it. And we will change the laws of this nation. We will do anything we have to to re-educate one generation as opposed to another generation in order to get uh, to uh, take away the stigma of wrongness concerning the things that we want to do and the things that we want to legitimize. But it's the same thing. It ends up with the same... You end up with the same culture. You end up with the same kind of world. Well, if you're going to deify human desires, then you have to deify one of the strongest of those desires, and that is the sex drive. And how did they do it? not only by failing to condemn sexual immorality, but instead by declaring that sexual immorality could be engaged in as an expression of worship toward the gods. 
And this brings us to the greatest, single greatest thing that Corinth was known for at the time that Paul wrote this letter, and that was sexual immorality. Because Corinth was situated between these two ports, on any day of the week you had thousands and thousands and thousands of sailors in the area far, far, far from home. And so you had this kind of situation where that alone would make Corinth ripe for rampant sexual immorality. But historians tell us that it was also Corinth was the site of the temple of Aphrodite and the goddess of uh, Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty and love and pleasure and procreation. It was all about sex and worshiping uh, Aphrodite. And the priests of the temple of Aphrodite, they owned more than 10,000 temple prostitutes, both male and female. Uh, people would take their children and as an act of worship to Aphrodite, they would give their children to the temple for the priests to then use however the priests chose to use them. And so they owned more than 10,000 temple prostitutes, male and female, who prostituted themselves in the service of Aphrodite. And so they considered themselves to be sacred prostitutes. They would take the proceeds of their prostitution. It would be given back to the temple. And uh, the hiring of these prostitutes by um, the men that would hire them, they considered the money that was paid in order to engage in the activity that it was a, uh, a giving to the goddess of Aphrodite and that even the sexual act of engaging insects with these uh, 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 temple prostitutes, they considered that to be an act of worship expressed to Aphrodite. I mean, they did everything that they could to remove any kind of stigma, negative stigma related to sexual immorality. And in a nutshell, that was Corinth at the time of the writing of this letter. It was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. A number of years ago, there was a pat used to be a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas. There are several Calvary Chapels in Las Vegas. But one of the pastors there, and I think he was probably the first pastor that was there, he now gives, he, he is kind of retired from that, and he gives his full attention to foreign missions and traveling the world and teaching inductive Bible study and all. But I remember talking with him and listening to him at a conference that was held there one time, and uh, uh, some years ago, Las Vegas was the fastest-growing city in the United States. And uh, when he and his wife were exploring the possibility of coming to Las Vegas, they felt the Lord was leading them to do that and, and to plant a church there. They received literature uh, from the city boasting of its extraordinary low crime rate. And it was only after they moved there and started the church that they realized why the crime rate was so low. Nothing's illegal. So that's one way of dealing with crime. Just simply legalize everything that everyone ought to do but shouldn't be doing. Now, we laugh at that related to Las Vegas, but that's the trend of the whole country. That's the trend of how these things are being addressed on almost, again, a weekly and monthly basis, on a national and even on a state level. 
And I think it's helpful to realize that when the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his letter to the Romans, that he wrote it from Corinth. And so when he has that uh, damning description of the carnality and the sinful tendencies of fallen man, when man chooses to worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore, as he lays all of that out in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, it's not because he had any kind of personal um, you know, experience with that kind of darkness. It wasn't because he became an investigative reporter in order to learn about this. All he needed to do in Corinth was throw open the doors of his house and just watch the city. And he had the description of it right before his eyes. And yet in the midst of all of this, wonderfully so, God used the Apostle Paul to plant a church there. And all that's recorded in Acts chapter 18. The Apostle Paul labored in the city of Corinth for 18 months. That's the longest period he spent in any one city other than Ephesus. In Ephesus, he spent three years. In Corinth, he spent 18 months. You think about how short his adult life was between his conversion and his martyrdom, and yet God had him invest 18 months of that that time of his life in this city, preaching the gospel and then establishing uh, a church there. I One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible concerning the power of God and the ability of the gospel to change lives is found in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And Paul wrote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't let anybody lie to you. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And the idea is, and of that is, it is not because they engage in those sins that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea is that because They make a lifestyle of engaging in those sins. It is merely an evidence that they have not yet been born again and given their life to the Lord. But he went on as he lays those sins out, and he said, And such were some of you. I love that past tense. (laughs) And such were some of you. But... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And I love that word, were. This is what they once were, but now there's something entirely different because of the gospel. And those beautiful, that repeated word, but, in that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And from that very immoral and ungodly and culturally depraved context of Corinth. Again, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, declared, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
He saw a lot of things that people were doing that they ought to be ashamed of. But while he sat in Corinth in the midst of the filth and the degradation and watching what sin turned people into, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, this is the only hope for delivering men and women from this kind of lifestyle and living down on the level of animals. And he had seen the power of the gospel demonstrated in saving and changing lives there, even in pagan Corinth. Now let me just give you a very brief overview of Paul's introduction to this letter, and and then we'll be done for this morning. In this letter, he, it was written by Paul. He identifies himself in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Today, now, when we write a letter to somebody else, uh, the structure of the letter runs something like this. We begin with dear so-and-so. We identify who we're writing to. And then we follow it with a greeting. I hope that you're doing well. Follow it by the body of the letter, the reason that we're writing to them. And then we close it all with a, a benediction and we sign our name. And thus, in receiving a letter today, all you need to do to know who wrote the letter is simply look on the envelope or to just go to the last page of the letter, the end of the letter, see the name, and ah, there it is. It's easy to know who wrote the letter. But in the ancient world, they wrote letters on scrolls. And it wasn't the letters didn't take the form that, that we took. And so the writers would identify themselves in the first sentence of the letter so you wouldn't have to roll through the whole scroll in order to find out who in the world sent me this, this letter. And a typical letter in the ancient world consisted of the following elements. Who wrote the letter? who it was written to, there would be a word of greeting, then followed by some kind of a thanksgiving, I'm thankful for your life, I'm thankful that God is doing this, whatever it might be. Then there would be the body of the letter, and then a closing benediction and greeting. And I want you to notice, too, in verse 1, that Paul identified himself as an apostle. So this tells us something significant, that this letter is not a personal letter, Um, though he had a personal relationship with them. He's writing a letter with apostolic authority. In other words, everything that he says in this letter and everything that he exhorts them to do and he commands them to do, that this is not something that is open for them to take seriously. But they are to obey, uh, take heed to his exhortations. They are to obey the commandments that he gives them. With him at the time of the writing of this letter was a fellow Christian by the name of Sosthenes. It isn't entirely unlikely that this is the same Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 who was the ruler of the synagogue when Paul was ministering in Corinth and tried to lead a rebellion against Paul by bringing Paul forcibly before the Roman uh, judicial system there and the governor of the, over the Roman judicial system said, I don't want to ha- deal with your religious matters. And he dismissed the case. And the uh, Gentiles that were associated with the Roman court then uh, beat Sosthenes up, though the ruler didn't know that that had been done. That happened in private. 
And so it's very likely that this same man ultimately became a Christian. Probably of no surprise to Paul. Paul was the last man in the world you would have ever expected to ever become a Christian. Uh, he would have been on the list of least likely. You know, you have in high school and junior high, most, most likely to, and they've got all these categories and they guess these people that are going to be this or that, most likely to succeed and all. Nobody thought Paul would be a Christian. And so when Sosthenes, nobody thought Sosthenes would become a Christian except probably Paul. So I've, I've, been, I've been on that journey before. And uh, so Sosthenes came into the kingdom and, and uh, Paul immediately befriends him and makes, gives him an influential place in his life. The letter was written, uh, who the letter was written to is there in verse 2. Beautiful description of Christians. The church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, uh, we are called to be saints. And then his word of greeting is there, grace to you in peace. And that was just the common greeting in the ancient world. Uh, the Greeks or the Gentiles would greet one another by saying grace to you or charis. And that just meant mercy. Uh, grace means unmerited favor. So it would be their way of saying, have a nice day. And so when a Greek would say to somebody else, charis or grace, it would be saying, hey, may you have a better day than you deserve. <laughs> and uh, which is a nice way of putting it. But it's a little humility to the whole thing, which is never harmful. And uh, then the Greeks would, uh, the, the Jews would greet one another with the word shalom, peace. And so Paul takes these two uh, greetings of both the Gentile world and the Jewish world, and he puts them together. It's interesting that in all of the greetings uh, in, that are contained in the letters in the New Testament, where grace and peace are made a part of the greeting, it's always in that order. It's always grace first and then peace. It is never, ever reversed. And the reason for it is, is because a person will only know the peace of God and peace in a relationship with God as we know God's grace. And so there is no peace apart from grace. Grace always precedes peace. And so this order and, and fascinating and good to know that when we read that in our own devotional lives, grace and peace, they are inseparable. I remember the first time I ever heard Pastor Chuck refer to this as a brand new Christian as grace and peace. He said these things are referred, this is referred to this greeting as the Siamese twins of the New Testament. I don't know what the origin uh, was of that, that he said that, but it was a beautiful picture that put in my mind that you cannot separate these two and still be left with uh, either one of them. Uh, peace always is a byproduct of a grace-based relationship with God. He says that this greeting is given not only from him, but this, he desires this grace and peace upon their lives from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that's the relationship that God the Father and Jesus wants to have with us. He wants to have, they want to have a grace-based, peace-filled relationship with us. And then he expresses his thanksgiving concerning them in verses 4 through 9. And Jesus did this. 
um, when he wrote in his seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he always tried to find something good to say about the church that he was writing to. He wasn't always successful because two of the seven churches, there was nothing good that he could find to say about what they were doing. Now, that takes a lot because Jesus knows everything. He sees everything. So two of them, he couldn't find anything. But in general, that's what he he tried to do, to affirm them in some way. And so the Apostle Paul is experiencing that same ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so he comes to this part of the letter where he wants to encourage them in what it is that they are uh, doing right And uh, now Paul ran into a little bit of a problem in finding something praiseworthy about the church, something he could be thankful for. And so he never says in this entire introduction that he is thankful to them for something. He says over and over again, I'm thankful to God. I'm thankful that God is doing this in your life. I'm thankful that God is giving this to you. I'm thankful for God, for his nature and his character. Paul was no phony. He just wasn't a phony. He wasn't just going to write off some phony letter and say, I'm going to say these things about you even though they aren't true. He couldn't find anything to affirm in them. But he found a reason to be thankful in God and how God had blessed them. And he expressed there in verse 4 his thankfulness to God for all of the grace that God had shown to them. He was thankful in verses 5 through 7, for how richly God had blessed them with spiritual gifts. Now, they misused them all, and they made a mess of all of it. But it doesn't change the fact that God had really blessed this church with gifts of, of the Holy uh, Spirit. And so he contents himself with just giving thanks that they had received that kind of gifting in that kind of a measure. And then he thanked in verse 8 God for the sureness of their salvation because it's based in Christ. And finally, in verse 9, he thanked God for his faithfulness, God's faithfulness to them. And so here in Corinth, that's the context of Corinth. It's the world that we live in. It's the nation that we live in. And the nation that we live in is hurtling in that direction. And so we have to rethink what kind of a Christianity and what kind of a commitment to Christ is required in order to stand in the midst of that and do more than stand to be an influence for Christ in the midst of that. And here's this church. They possessed everything they needed from God in order to be living a holy, Christ-like life, even in Corinth, and yet they weren't. They failed. Why did they fail? For one single great reason. And the mistake is repeated over and over and over and over again today in individual churches and in individual lives. But getting into that, we have to wait until next time because we don't have the time for it today. So hold that thought. There's an old saying, leave them longing rather than loathing. 
you say, Damien, when did you start giving consideration to that? You leave me alone. So as we close this morning, for those of us who know the Lord and love the Lord, we praise the Lord for what he saved us out of. And such were some of you. And one of the nice things that happens sometimes is a person gets saved early in life before we go the path of Corinth. And yet the older we grow, we realize that the same tendencies are in us as as anybody else. The flesh is just as strong. The desires are just as strong. We're not better than anybody else. And we're able to realize that that, the capacity for living that life to going in those kind of directions was completely in me. But praise the Lord for what he saved me out of before that could even be an option in my life. And then this morning, praise the Lord for the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said as he looked at Corinth. As I look at the world in which I live and the nation in which I live and I look at my own life, I'll tell you there's one thing I'm not ashamed of. I'm not ashamed of that gospel and the God who provided it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said, anyone can be saved. And I have seen God transform and change every kind of life, no matter how deep their addiction, their bondage to sin, the lusts of their flesh. He had seen God do that in Corinth. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, God will do exactly that in your life today. He'll perform the same miracle of God. Someone can sit here on something and say, no, I've tried. I've, I've been to this. I've been to that. You know, we've got all these diets for trying to lose weight. So there's this diet, and then they've got the South Beach diet and the North Beach diet. And then here's one where you've got to eat so much grapefruit that you hate yourself. And You don't even want to see food again if it means having to eat another grapefruit before I eat it. I'm not putting any of that down. I'm just saying you know how all this stuff comes and goes and all of the fads and all of these kind of things because we've been an affluent country. So there's a lot of food, and it's cheap, relatively speaking, and we have access to it. But what do we do when the world around us changes and the nation that we live in changes? And now all the things that will damage us emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually are now so free, so accessible, so easy to grab a hold of. And there's this program and this program and this program and this program. And I go over here to try to fix this thing. And then I try to fix this area over here. And I go over here and I try to fix this thing and to find this thing. And then I'm trying to hold down a job to keep a roof over my head. And you discover that you're a full-time job. And more than a full-time job. 
God says, I'll make you my project. I'll come in and make you a brand new creation. I'll deliver you from all of that. And I'll bring you into a life that you can only dream exists. And he'll do it. And he alone has the power to do it. And it's a whole nother sermon and a different sermon. But the power of the gospel. There is no hope. And I'm talking to Christians now. There is no hope in this world for human beings apart from that gospel. Not just related to eternity, but related to this life that we live in now. Praise the Lord for the power of the gospel to change lives because it's God's chosen way of choosing lives. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, God wants to begin that, perform that miracle in your life today and begin that life that he has planned for you. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up, up in front after the service. They'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that life this morning. There is a life distinct and different and wonderfully so from the life that you have lived and from the life that we see people living all around us that is making casualties of them. There's a way out, and it's found in Christ. Come to him this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we see the same trends. We see our nation and our world becoming Corinth, not on a city level, but on a national level and a worldwide level. We see Las Vegas is no longer a place that you have to go to to <clears throat> indulge in all of the lusts of the flesh. Nothing is illegal, but we see our own country going the path of Las Vegas rather than your path. And we see the world following in the same way so dramatically. We thank you that there's another life. We thank you that there's a holy life, a free life, a meaningful life. And we thank you this morning for the shed blood of our Savior to make it possible. Father, thank you for the power of your gospel. We thank you for what you have saved us out of when nothing else could have done what you did by your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we give you praise for that, Lord. We pray for each one that stands before you that is not yet a Christian, has not yet put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray that you speak to their heart and their mind right now. Let them know that you love them, that you're talking to them, that it's them that you want to do the miracle in, Lord, and then give them the grace to come forward this morning and to give their lives to you. And, Lord, we pray that you just perform that beautiful miracle in their life that you did for us. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.